Welcome to the Graceway Sermon Cast. Graceway is a Baptist church located in Lexington, Kentucky. We have a heart for God and a deep love for people. You can learn more about our church by visiting www.gracewaylex.org. Now, here's this week's message. We're in Isaiah chapter 30 this morning. I believe this is the, if I'm counting right, it's the eighth message um, in this series as we've been walking through this book together. Also pray you had a, a good Memorial Day weekend. Uh, it's kind of the kickoff to summer. And um, also just grateful for those who, who serve and paid the ultimate price so we can enjoy the freedoms that we have um, in our country. And actually, Memorial Day reminds me of this. It's, it's a, there's a biblical principle that when we celebrate and when we remember those who have uh, laid down their lives for us, this is what Jesus says, greater love has no man than this, that he would be willing to lay down his life for his friends or for his countrymen. And so uh, we're thankful for that, and, and I hope that you had a good Memorial Day, and I hope you had took time to remember those uh, who paid that price. And I also wanted to thank Pastor Chris as well. I don't know if you know this, but Pastor Chris, you, the message that you preached last Sunday was, was, I mean, man, it hit me right in my heart. It was great. The message of the potter, that allegory of the potter and the clay. Um, and if you did not get a chance to be here this past Sunday, I encourage you to go back and, and listen to that. You can actually find all the sermons that are preached here uh, on our podcast, on Graceway, Graceway Church's podcast. If you just search that or if you go to our website, gracewaylex.org, we have those there as well. It's also on our YouTube channel too. Pastor Chris said, hey, we can start putting that up there if you want. And uh, so if you want that message, it's available at both of those. And I encourage you to go and, and, and listen to that. Um, so he used that allegory of the potter and the clay in Isaiah chapter 29 and then Jeremiah 29, several other places in Scripture. We see that God uses this allegory of this, this, this potter and the, and the clay. And God is our master potter. He's the one molding us and making us and shaping us, and we're the clay in his hands. And uh, the unique thing about the master potter and us as the clay is that uh, contrary to what more pot, most potters will tell you here as they're working with ceramics and they're working with clay, is we as the clay, we fight back against the master potter, right? We, we say, I don't know if I like necessarily the way that you're molding me and that you're shaping me. And that the master potter tends to us with such love and care, right? He removes the impurities that are in us. He removes the sin so that he can work with us. And then we also have to go under pressure so that we can be, so that we can be fit for the potter's use and for whatever he's molding us to. But how many times, let me ask you this, how many times as the clay have you been on that spinning wheel and you're going kicking and screaming in whatever direction the potter is forming you? Right? We do that. that that's, just, that's just what we do. It's our nature that even though as children of God, even though we've been given a new spirit, we've been given, we've been given the Holy Spirit to indwell us, we've been given a new path, we've been given a new life, what do we do? We fight and kick and scream when the potter begins to work. Now, I don't say all that just to, you know, try to, try to re-preach Pastor Chris's message, but as he was preaching last Sunday, I wrote this thing down in my notes, and I want to I share this with you in my personal notes. It says this, as the clay, I am best served to simply trust the process of the potter. As the clay, we are best served to simply trust the potter's process. How many times do we think that we know more than the potter? He's making us out to be a bowl, and we're like, no, man, I was built to be a mug. I was made. This is what I was made to be. And we start telling the potter, no, what you're making, I will be so much better as a mug than I would be as a bowl. I don't want cold cereal in me. I want hot coffee. And the only way it should be drunk is black, right? So that's, that's it, Amen. right? 
But as the clay, we are best served to trust the potter's process because he has the vision, he has the skill, he has the idea, and he has the use and purpose already mapped out. So we need to trust the perfection, we need to trust the purification, we need to trust the pressure, and we need to trust the purpose as well. And really, that's the challenge of discipleship, isn't it? That's the challenge of following Christ. Oh yeah, that's wonderful. Man, Jesus died on the cross to give me heaven? All right, I'll take that. But he wants me to follow him as Lord and master of my life? That's tough. That's going to be harder to do, right? As a matter of fact, this is exactly what Jesus said would be the hardest part of our following him. We haven't got to the text yet. This is just the pretext text. Jesus said in Matthew 16, he says, Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wants to follow after me, then let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. Those are three things that our flesh hates to do. Deny ourselves? Man, come on. That means I got to sit on this wheel and let the potter form me? I I, got to take up my cross? Hold on, I I I thought I was taking up the road to heaven here. And then follow after Jesus? I got to follow? I got to give up my path? But there's also this promise for those who do trust the process. Over in Mark chapter 1, it says, Jesus said to them, follow me. And here's the promise. I will make you become fishers of men. Jesus has a purpose to the process. You may be on that wheel right now, and you're going through pain, or you're going through pressure, and you may be going through some questions, and you may be wondering, God, what in the world are you doing? I don't like the way you're shaping me. I don't like the form that this is taking. And God says, I am making you to become something that you can never be without my involvement and could never be without me. So there's the promise in the midst of the pressure and in the purpose. But then also we, we, we look at the fact that Jesus says there's a purpose in the process and following me makes you fit for my use. So in case you're wondering, I'm not trying to re-preach Pastor Chris's message because it sets, the, it sets the stage for the very next chapter that we're in in Isaiah chapter 30. And Isaiah chapter 30 sits right in the middle of this section of 28 through 31, 32-ish where the, um, the children of Israel, or the nation of Israel, specifically the southern kingdom of Judah, is up against a problem. They're under siege by Assyria. And uh, Assyria had already conquered the northern kingdom. So what we, what we see in our passage is how God has dealt with the rebellion of his people. Just like we were talking about with the kids. God brought them out of Egypt, put them in a land that that they did not deserve, but God had promised to them. He had given them everything, but then what you see is generation after generation. There's a generation who loves God, then there'll be a generation who doesn't, and they'll run away and they'll run back to God all the time. Now they're under siege by Assyria, who is the leading nation now, the strongest army that you could think of in the world. And because of their rebellion to God, over Israel's history, we had seen division come in. Israel has been now divided into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom, which we call Israel, uh, and uh, their their capital is Samaria. And the southern kingdom is Judah, and their capital is Jerusalem. The northern kingdom has already been defeated by Assyria. And what's interesting, if you look back in chapter 28, you'll see that God chooses to use Assyria as his instrument of judgment upon his people for rebellion. He says, I'm going to let them invade because they will learn in no other way. They can learn what it's like to have life without me. They've already invaded. They've already carried some people away captive. And now they've made their way down to the southern kingdom of Judah where Ahaz is king and then soon to be Hezekiah will be king. And Isaiah is the prophet that is ministering to both kings at this time and advising. And they're sitting there and they're under siege in in Jerusalem and they're thinking, we cannot let them take God's city. 
So what are we going to do to defend the city? What are we going to do to defend the city? We've got to find a way to defend God's city. And Hezekiah and Ahaz are thinking, we've got to make an alliance with somebody to help us because we can't defend it on our own. And that's where we're at. So let's pick up in chapter 30, beginning in verse 1. And this is God's word through Isaiah. He says this, Woe to the rebellious children. This is the Lord's declaration. So obviously out the gate we see, oh man, they're not going to make the right call, are they? When God pronounces woe, it's not good. You're always going to end up saying woe is me after God pronounces woe. And here's why. They carry out a plan, but it's not mine. They make an alliance, but against my will. And they pile sin on top of sin without asking my advice. I just wrote in my Bible, what would that advice have been? We're going we're gonna to talk about that. <laughs> what would God's advice have just been? As a pastor, sometimes when I talk to people, I'm thinking, you know what, maybe just give God a chance to speak into it just one time, just to see what he says. Verse number two. Without asking my advice, they set to go down to where? To Egypt. In order to seek shelter under Pharaoh's protection and to take refuge in Egypt's shadow, but Pharaoh's protection will become your shame, and refuge in Egypt's shadow will become your humiliation. For though his princes are his own, and his, uh, his messengers reach as far as Hanaz, everyone will be ashamed because of a people who can't help. They are of no benefit, they are of no help, they are good for nothing but shame and disgrace." pronouncement concerning the animals of the Negev. You're thinking, why, why do we care about the animals? You're going to find out in just a minute. Though Through a land of trouble and distress, of lioness and lion, of viper and flying servant, they carry their wealth on the backs of donkeys and their treasures on the humps of camels to a people who will not help them. Egypt's help is completely worthless. Therefore, I call her Rahab who just sits. Go now, write it on a tablet in their presence and inscribe it on a scroll. It will be for the future forever and ever. They, speaking of Egypt and of those who align with Egypt are a deceptive people, deceptive children, children who do not want to listen to the Lord's instructions. They say to the seers or to the prophets, do not see, and to the prophets, do not prophesy the truth to us. Tell us flattering things. Tell me what I want to hear, not what I need to hear. Prophesy illusions. Get out of the way. Leave the pathway. Rid us of the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, the Holy One of Israel says, because you've rejected this message and have trusted in oppression and deceit, and have depended on them, this iniquity of yours will be like a crumbling gap, a bulge in a high wall whose collapse will come in an instant, and suddenly its collapse will be like the shattering of a potter's jar crushed to pieces, so that not even a fragment of pottery will be found among its shattered remains. No fragment large enough to take fire from a hearth or scoop water from a cistern. Don't think that that imagery and allusion to pottery is there by accident. Just in 29, he was talking about it too. For the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, has said, You will be delivered by returning and resting. Your strength will lie in quiet confidence, but you're not willing. You say, No, we will escape on horses. Therefore, you will escape. And we'll ride on fast horses, but those who pursue you will be faster. One thousand will flee at the threat of one, and the threat of five you will flee until you remain like a solitary pole on a mountaintop or a banner on a hill. Lest we get depressed, let's read verse 18. Therefore, the Lord is waiting to show you mercy and is rising up to show you compassion, for the Lord is a just God. All who patiently wait for him 
are happy. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would lead us and illuminate us this morning. Speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. So according to our passage, what is Hezekiah's solution for Assyria, the enemy, just sitting and prowling at the gates? What's his solution? His solution is to let's go to Egypt. Let's make an alliance with Egypt. What is God's opinion of that decision in verses 1 and 2? Whoa! Right? And not like, whoa, buddy, but although he should have said that, but he's like, he says this, he says, you're not only going to make wor- things worse, but you are sinning because you are rebelling from me because you know better. You have been generations into my walk and my relationship with you, and every time you do this, every time you walk away from me or you ally with the world, it always ends in tatters. But yet here you are again, thinking that you're, you can do better. And he says, if you would have just listened to me, he says, what is the result? The result is you are going to pile sin on top of sin. You're going to make a mess and make it even messier by trying to make it better. See, they knowingly broke disobedient fellowship with God to go back to Egypt. They literally, the Bible says, they set to go downward to Egypt. A former oppressor, a pagan nation, and hoping that in them they would find their greatest hope for defense. It's, it's just shocking to me. And this is the wisdom of the clay as it questions the potter. Let's get off this wheel and let's run back to Egypt. So I kind of feel like the title of the message is this. is that God's path is always forward for us. It's never to go backward. All right? And I want to I kind of look at it because you might be thinking, well, hold on. So I hear a lot of times we say we need to go back to the way things were. We need to go back. What we're talking about is we need to return to God. But anytime we return to God, we're returning forward. We're never returning backward. Because if you move away from God, you're not moving forward. You're always moving back to Egypt. Always. So here's the big idea that we have to consider. With God, the path is never backward. It's never backward. He's always moving us forward in his will and upward towards his presence. You see, the account that we read here in Isaiah may may describe a lot of you this morning. You may be feeling like, you may be feeling like you're under siege too. You may be feeling like, man, you have, Pastor, you have no idea what's going on in my life, and you have no idea what I had to overcome just to get here this morning. Maybe for you, you're at a point where you feel like the whole world's against you, and you're beginning to think that even God is against you, because God's not speaking, right? Maybe you've been struggling with a question or a season of uncertainty, and you're still waiting for clarity, or you're still waiting for wisdom from the Lord, and he seems silent. Or maybe you just got bad news from the doctor, about a certain diagnosis, or you've got to go in for tests, and you don't know what those tests are going to reveal, and you're beginning to run out of patience, and you're beginning to run out of hope that God's going to intervene. Maybe you're in a valley in your marriage, or you're in a difficult relationship with someone in your life, or you're in a, in a difficult relationship with a child who maybe has gone into kind of a prodigal status, and you're thinking, God, I've been faithful to you. And judging by all the things the word says is, I should be getting blessed with a wonderful marriage and a wonderful relationship with my kids, but it seems like the more I serve you, the worse it gets. And you're wondering where God actually is. And if you're being brutally honest in church this morning, which by the way, it's a good place to be brutally honest. If you're being brutally honest, you don't agree with that big idea on the wall right now. Because for you, it doesn't seem like God's been moving the needle. It doesn't seem like he's been doing a whole lot to bring you upward and forward. It seems like he's just got you sitting still. And God's maybe grown a little bit stagnant. So what are we supposed to do when that happens? Because it does happen. Because I, I, I've been there before. And, and currently, I, there's things in my life right now that I'm, I'm going, God, what are you doing? Here's 
what do you do in that point, right? You, you have the same, you may not be King Hezekiah, but you have the same situation. Where am I going to find my defense? Where am I going to find my help? We know the scripture says, I lift my eyes into the hills from whence comes my help. But man, there seems to be a whole lot of other options below those hills, doesn't it? So what do we do in the midst of that? And so this morning, what I want to look at is three things. I'm going to look at them very quickly this morning because it's getting warm in here. Um, we'll look at three things very quickly this morning to see what we should do and how we, what we should remember when it feels like we're stuck under siege. And the first thing is, we need to remember this, is the road to rebellion always starts with regression. Regret, or if you want to look at it this way, regression is always going to lead you to a place of, rebe- of rebellion. It always is. All right. If you know much about Old Testament history, the story of, G- of God's relationship with the Jewish people, you have to just ask them this question. Like when I get to heaven, there's some questions I want to ask, and I want to kind of go to the people of, of, Egypt, or of, of Israel and say, what was it with you people and Egypt? Right? What was it? It's like Egypt is the default fix for all of their problems. Like in the wilderness, if you know about them traveling through the wilderness, they got hungry. What did they say? You know, we always had some food. We always had some moldy bread and water when we were in Egypt. They got thirsty, and they were out in the desert, and God was going to provide for them from a rock. But you know what they said? You know what? We were always able to drink from the Nile when we were in the Egypt. When they were out wandering through the wilderness and putting up their tents yet again, they were thinking, you know what? It was really nice when we had just kind of a fixed place in our mud huts back in Goshen in Egypt. And Moses is probably sitting there as the leader thinking, you know what? You're right. You're right. You you know, you you had it made. What was it? There was one little thing that it wasn't so, oh, right, you were slaves, right? (laughs) Did we forget that? You were enslaved, and Pharaoh was breaking your back, and he took all your straw, and he was saying, make bricks out of water, and, out of water right? And, and he was beating you senseless, and he was, he was killing your people. He was stealing your children. He was raping your wives. He was doing, abusing you to no end. But you're right. You did have some water to drink from the Nile. Never, not to mention that God had said, I'm going to take you from a place where you're enslaved to a place where you, it is your land. It is my land that I've given to you and you're going to prosper. And it's going to be a land flowing with milk and honey, not just water and moldy bread. And you're going to be a shining light to the entire world of what it looks like when people give themselves over to their creator. That sounds like us a lot of times, doesn't it? Right? See, in verse 1 of our text, God says they're not just being foolish. See, and here's their answer. Again, we're here back at Hezekiah. It's been a few generations, you know, several generations ahead. Man, they've been through a lot. They've seen God's blessing. They're sitting in God's city. There's a huge temple there. It's, 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 it's wonderful. Everything is going wonderful. And here's what Hezekiah says. You know what? We haven't checked in on good old Egypt for a while. I wonder if they'd help us out. Verse 1 of our text says, God, they're not just being foolish. It's not just laughable. It's rebellious. And here's why. Because they know better. They know better. They've had the benefit of being generations removed from Egypt, and they've seen God lead them through so much, yet they still think that he's not enough. It reminds us how quick we are to boast that God never fails. God never fails. And how faithful we are, God never fails until something is staring us in the face that we're afraid of. And then we forget all the times he's overcome the odds. All the times he has worked. See, what's amazing to me here is that they run to a nation that had already been utterly defeated and decimated by God before, 
And they're like, let's run back to them because I think we can trust them a little bit more than we can trust the God that defeated them before. Makes no sense whatsoever, right? Maybe, and not to mention that they had enslaved them when they tried to work with them before. Maybe Hezekiah is just thinking, you know what? Maybe Egypt got all that out of their system a while back. Verse 7 tells us what God thinks of Egypt's ability to help. In verse number 7, Egypt's help is completely worthless. Therefore, I call her Rahab, who just sits. That word Rahab there, it's short for a nickname that had been given to Egypt throughout, throughout Jewish history. It was Rahab Hemshaveth. Say that seven times fast and, fast and try not to sneeze on somebody. But it simply means Rahab the do-nothing. It says Egypt isn't of no help to you. In verses 8 through 11, we see that their rebellion is intensified by rejecting God's word. See, there were those who decided not only to, ally with, uh, to, uh, to make an alliance with Egypt, but they said, you know what, we're going to get out of Jerusalem, we're going to go down to Egypt because we think it's just a safer place to be while we're under siege. And we'll come back when it's better. Look at verses 10 and 11. Those people said, say to the seers, don't see, and the prophets do not prophesy the truth to us. Tell us flattering things, prophesy illusions, get out of the way, leave the pathway, rid us of the Holy One of Israel. They were so invested in Egypt and in the path back that they said, we want nothing more to do with God. And I don't want to hear and I don't want to be reminded of God's goodness because I've already set my eyes away from Him and I've set my eyes backwards to Egypt. Then God says that this path is only going to lead to destruction, but do what do they think they'll be able to do? He says, destruction's going to come. It's going to find you. And then he says there in verses, in verses 11, through, uh, 11 through the rest there, he says, they say, well, we'll be able to get away on horses. These alliances have got us new horses with Egypt, and we'll be able to escape on our fast Egyptian horses. And God says, yeah, but those Assyrian horses are going to outrun you. And those Egyptian horses, they're going to be so scared of all the Assyrian horses that a thousand of them are going to flee at the presence of one Assyrian horse. And it breaks something completely. And Hezekiah knows the law. He knows the word. Over in Deuteronomy, when the law was being established for God's people, it was stated specifically as a law for the kings of God's people. If you look at Deuteronomy chapter 17, it says, when you enter the land that the Lord your God is giving you, now this is, this is decades, centuries old here, but it's still the law. Take possession of it, live in it, and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations around me. You are to appoint over you the the king that the Lord chooses. Appoint a king from your brothers. You are not to set a foreigner over you or one, from, one who is not from your people. However, he must not acquire many horses for himself or send people back to Egypt to acquire many horses. What? It's almost like God knew something. For the Lord has told you, catch this, you are never to go back that way again. And what are they thinking about doing? Let's go back that way. You know, we haven't been that way for a while. Rebellion is always marked with regression. Rebellion is always, I think I had it better when I wasn't with God. And I think you can see where I'm headed with this one, right? E Egypt in Scripture is always seen as a metaphor for sin, a metaphor for the old way, the, the flesh life before Jesus. And this is why it's so tempting. When we face trials, we face tribulation, we face things and distress in our lives, we begin to think, man, God maybe isn't as good as he promised me to be. And I think some of that's part and parcel to our American way of looking at God, is that God's going to give me heaven, he's going to make everything go away. It's not what he promised. He said, you follow me, you, lay your, you, you take up your cross, you lay down your life and you follow me. It may get harder to follow Jesus than it was without him.
It may. It may not. But Egypt was always seen as that. It's tempting to us to think, man, when things are going good, maybe God's not as good as he promised to be, so I think I'm just going to go back there. At least I could have fun. God's people thought that they could move forward by going back, but going back was really going away from what God was doing to bring them forward. And many of people look today at the Word of God as this outdated, ancient, archaic document that's just a book of rules and regs from cultures of bygone eras that, you know, just have had their place in history, but we've moved on from them. They say we've progressed beyond outdated philosophies. We've progressed beyond those things and social norms of the old days. And there's pressure even on the church to say, you know what? I'm going to embrace these progressive ideologies and thought processes and identity and all that type of stuff. But it's just rebellion by going back to an old way of thinking, to an old way of godless thinking. It's just rebellion by regression in disguise, pretending to be advancing. See, anytime we move from God, we move backwards to sin. Ecclesiastes said there's nothing new under the sun. So every new fad and every new trend that comes to be that looks like, man, you know what, I don't, know, I don't necessarily know if that jives with the Bible. It's not new. It's just Satan's old game with a different package. Come back over here. Come back over here. And so rebellion is paved by regression. The second thing we have to see is there's another pathway. The path to restoration is carved out by God's compassionate mercy. So we have a choice. I can take the path backward or I can take the path forward with God. But thankfully, we serve a God that no matter how many times we jump on the path backward in regression, there's always a path to restoration that's carved out by his, his mercy and his compassion. Verses 1 through 17 show us that we can never find God's path forward by regressing toward the path of sin and rebellion because it's going to lead to destruction every time. But thankfully, verse 18 is filled with hope. And it turns on a dime, doesn't it? It goes from like the death and destruction of your horses and you have no help and no hope to verse number 18, therefore, or that word therefore meaning because of all of what we just saw. Because of all of this, the Lord is waiting to show you mercy. I want to stop for just a moment and consider God's character here. God is not an I told you so God, is he? As a parent, I'm really tempted to be an I told you so kind of parent. You know, because I like to be right. I love to be right. And it's hard sometimes when I'm always right. <sighs> it's a burden. It's like when people say, you know what a burden it is to be beautiful. No, I don't. <laughs> Please lay some of your burden on me. But you know what I mean? It's just, it's, just, it's hard. It's hard to be right all the time and watch people and know, you know, I'm just, okay, I'm done. Therefore, the Lord is waiting to show you mercy because he knows the path you're getting ready to take. What has he provided along that pathway? An exit ramp to repentance, an exit ramp to restoration, an exit ramp to forgiveness. I'm waiting to show you mercy and I am rising up to show you compassion for the Lord is a just God. All who wait patiently for him are happy. So when you're thinking, when we were talking about what do I do? What, what's the answer? What would God's advice have been if they had considered it? This would have been the advice. Wait on the Lord. Wait on the Lord. Do you think, Israel, do you think, Hezekiah, that I don't know that Assyria is encamped out there? Listen, we're the ones who need satellites to see what's going on. God doesn't. 
God knows what's going on at any time, at all times, and he even knows what's going on in the hearts. And he also knows what he's going to do with it. If you would just wait on me, you'll be happy. Ultimately, God's plan of action is not judgment, it's redemption. See, God could have just said, you know what, this is the last time. And there could have been a million other times beforehand that I should have just said, you know what, I'm done with you all. I'm going to go find a new people that will be nicer to me. And that will listen to me. But he doesn't. What does he say? I'm just waiting. I'm waiting again to show you compassion again. Look at verse number 19. For the people will live on Zion and Jerusalem. You'll never weep again. He will show you favor to you at the sound of your outcry. As soon as he hears, he will answer you. It doesn't matter if that outcry comes before the problem or after it. He will answer you as soon as he hears. The Lord will give you meager bread and water during your oppression, but your teacher will not hide any longer. Your eyes will see your teacher. And whenever you turn to the right or to the left, your ears will hear this command behind you. This is the way. Walk in it. For you Mandalorian fans, this is the way that probably triggered something. Right? This is the way. Walk in it. What tells us is that God sees past the rebellion into the redemption. Many times the only thing in the flesh we're capable of is our rebellion. But I'm so thankful that we have a God who is capable and is the author of redemption. When the people finally cry out to God, he will be there. You see that there is a teacher that's going to rise up. You notice that that's capitalized? That's because it's a name. It's referring to and it's prophesying. It's a messianic prophecy, prophesying that there's a Messiah that will come. And when he comes, he'll set it straight. And when he comes, he will come to you when you cry out. And when he comes, he will provide for you. And he will provide the way for you. And he will continually beckon to your heart and to your spirit. This is the way to walk. Walk in it. And what will be the result of all that goodness and all that blessing? We see in verse number 22. When then you will defile your silver-plated idols and your gold-plated images, you'll throw them away like menstrual cloths and call them filth. All the other things you were holding, all the contracts with Egypt, all the contracts, you're just going to toss it all away and say, I don't need any of that stuff because I have the teacher. I have God and I'm waiting on him. This piece of the passage jumps forward because it's written in prose, because Isaiah is written in prose. It's not necessarily written in historical narrative. It's jumping forward to the promise, not just of what God would do for Israel at that moment with Assyria, but what God is going to do with all of us who trust in God and who trust in Jesus, that one day there is a battle coming. For those who wait on the Lord, there is victory coming. And not only is it coming, it's already here in Jesus Christ. There's coming a day when it's all going to make sense and we have no more temptation to go back to Egypt because Egypt and its idols are going to look like trash compared to the goodness and the glory of God. Verses 23 through 26 paint a picture of what it's going to look like. I'll let you look at that. But here's the thing that comes down to the ones who will benefit in that moment are the ones who will patiently in faith wait for the moment like it says in verse 18. Those who wait patiently for him will be happy. The path to restoration is always carved out by God's compassionate mercy. It's not anything that we do other than crying out to Him. So when we're in the midst of our trial, and we're in the midst of Egypt, and we're like, oh man, what have I done again? What does God want us to do? The same thing He wanted us to do before we got on that path to Egypt. Cry out to Him. 
and wait for his deliverance. In other words, God is always going to be our best option. He's always going to be our best option. Even if he says, wait. It's always the best option. (laughs) And in an instant here today, gone tomorrow kind of culture, the only thing that's not good to have instantly is coffee. You want to wait on a good coffee. The rest of it, give it to me as fast as you can. And barbecue. Sorry about that. I forgot to say that, right? God is always our best option, even if his option says wait. Because in the midst of the waiting, he still has you. So lastly, what we should, should look at is this. Is the, path is always, the, path to, uh, the path to rebellion is always paved on regression. The path to repentance and redemption is always paved by God's mercy and grace. And lastly, all paths, no matter which path you take, lead to God's victory anyway. All paths are going to lead to God's victory anyway. And that may sound like a contradiction, but it's really not. Because let me ask you a question. Were the Jewish people headed for defeat and destruction by going back to Egypt? Yeah. But did their path toward Egypt hinder God's path to ultimate victory? No, God was going to have the victory regardless. What mattered, what mattered, was which seat they wanted to view the victory from. See, nothing's going to squander God's glory. Nothing's going to squander God's victory. He's going to have his glory, and he will have his victory. The story's already been written, right? He's going to have that. But what matters is, will we wait on the Lord, and will we wait faithfully for that victory? And which side... Which side will we be on when it comes? Right? If you look at the last section of chapter 30, you'll see what God's ultimate victory looks like. Look at verse number 27. Look, the name of the Lord is coming from far away, his anger burning and heavy with smoke. His lips are full of fury and his tongue is like a consuming fire. His breath is like an overflowing torrent that rises to the neck. He comes to sift the nations in a sieve of destruction and put a bridle on the jaws of the peoples that lead them astray. Assyria will be shattered by the voice of the Lord. He'll strike with a rod, and every stroke of the appointed staff that the Lord brings down on him will be the sound of tambourines and lyres. He'll fight against them with brandished weapons. Indeed, Topheth has been ready for the king for a long time. Its funeral pyre is deep and wide. With plenty of fire and wood, the breath of the Lord, like a torrent of burning sulfur, kindles it. I don't know about you, but somebody who can bring that kind of sure victory, I want to be on that side. Right? So what does this all mean? That's a, that's, a, that's a lot to digest right there. Well, in verses 27 through 20, 23, or 33, we see just how powerful and just how sure God's ultimate victory is. And since Isaiah is written in a prose format, he uses some kind of like metaphorical language and he uses beautiful like sweeping language to help us picture what it's going to look like. But it's actually talking about what Bible scholars believe, not only the destruction of Assyria, but also one day the destruction of Satan's forces and his plans and his schemes at what some people call the Battle of Armageddon, right? And verse 33 talks about this place called Topheth. Well, what's, what's this place called Topheth? Topheth is a historical place that existed at that time, that at that time was this valley where pagans had set up an altar where those who worship Molech would sacrifice their children to by burning them on an altar. And that's pretty graphic, isn't it, to think about? So this is a place of just continuous burning, continuous noise made to pagan gods, Right? It was a place of fear. It was a place of, of sorrow and sadness. Later on in the New Testament, after the pagans were, were gone, it became basically the city dump outside of Jerusalem. 
It was where they went to burn all of their trash, and it was called Gehenna. Jesus talked about Gehenna many times, and that's what he referenced and looked at and used as a picture of hell and what takes place in hell to our spirits. He says this, he says, the king of Topheth, the funeral pyre has already been locked and loaded and ready for that. What he means by that is all of our best plans, all of what the world has to offer, all of what Satan tries to tempt us with is all going to just burn up one day. The only thing that's going to stand is God's plan, his will, and his purpose in us. All paths are going to lead, are going to end at the victorious moment when God shows forth his glory. So the only question as we close out this morning, which you have to ask is, which seat do you and I want to view it from? If you go to a sports game, you go to a, a, a ball game at Rupp Arena, or you go to a game at, at uh, where do the Reds play, or play, where, uh, yeah, Great American Ballpark. Which seats do you want to be in? Pastor Chris and I know we want to be in the uh, Valley Sports Club seats at, uh, at, at uh, there, that was great. Talk to us about that later. You go to Rupp, where do you want to be? You want to be down close to the floor, right? Be close to the action. We're all going to have a seat at that final battle. Which seat do you want? Do you want a seat that's far away from the one who wins, or do you want to have a seat close to the victor? Depends on us waiting patiently for him. Will we wait for him? Will we wait? So this morning, as we close out, I just want to read one more passage to you. Because it goes on in verse number 31 to talk about this. He says, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and who depend on horses. They trust in the abundance of chariots and a large number of horsemen. They do not look to the Holy One of Israel. They do not seek the Lord. But he also is wise and brings disaster. He does not go back on what he says. He will rise up against the house of the wicked and against the alliance of evildoers. Egyptians are men, not God. Their horses are flesh, not spirit. When the Lord raises his hand to strike, the helper will stumble, and the one who is helped will fall, and both will perish together. This is what the victory will look like. Now, what do I do when it doesn't seem like I'm getting the victory? Look what it says in Isaiah chapter 40, just about 10 chapters over. Isaiah chapter 40, in verse number 29, he gives strength to the faint. He strengthens the powerless. Even the youths will be Come weary and they will faint and the young men will stumble and fall, but those who trust in the Lord will renew their strength. They will rise up on wings like eagles. They will run and not become weary. They will walk and they will not faint. So what was God's advice if they had asked? Wait on me. Find your strength in me. Find your defense in me. You don't need an alliance with Egypt. You don't need to go backward because I'm always bringing you forward and I'm always bringing you upward to a seat at my glory. Let's pray. Father, I thank Thank you for listening today. At Graceway, our strongest desire is to glorify Christ by telling everyone about His grace. If you have questions or are in need of spiritual help, please reach out to us by visiting www.gracewaylegs.org and click on the Contact Us section. Or you can email us at gracewaylegs at gmail.com. Our worship services are held each Sunday at 10.30 a.m. We'd love to worship with you this week. Until next time, take care and walk in the way of grace.